Well, good morning, church. It is good to see you. Thank you for being here to worship with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, we are in Revelation chapter 3. This is the fourth week of our series called Apocalypse. We're walking through the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Uh, Just so you know, if you're new to the Vista, this is the first time we've ever walked through this particular book of the Bible. So we are not one of those churches that goes through Revelation all the time. All right. Um, And just kind of recapping where we've been so far, uh, just to remind you, Austin talked about this a few weeks back, that the book of Revelation is not like, it's not a book with some secret code in it. God's trying to like, uh, you know, put it out there veiled and then, and then we have to discover it. You know, you've seen the, we don't have any charts. We don't have any graphs. We're not predicting when Jesus is coming back. We're not sure what that's going to look like when he does. That is not the purpose of Revelation. And if, uh, if you kind of go to Revelation and, and that is your, your main agenda, you're really missing the big point of Revelation. That Revelation is essentially a book that is about Jesus and it's about the church. Okay, it's about Jesus and the church. And so again, if you're, if you're going to Revelation with, with uh, an ulterior motive or something different, you're, you're really missing the big idea of what it is about, okay? And so our goal as we walk through this uh, particular book is to keep the main thing the main thing. And so today in Revelation 3, we're gonna continue. Last week, we looked at four churches. In Revelation 2 and 3, uh, Jesus is essentially uh, has some words for, four, for seven churches, we said these are actual historical churches, um, and, and in a lot of ways, they are sort of a representative of, of, a lot, of all churches. There are things that we can learn from them, um, and so we would do well, actually, as the church today, to look at those that have gone before and learn from them. What did they do well? What did they do right? How can we imitate that? And then, what did they do wrong? Where did they get their priorities out of line, and maybe we can avoid some of the pitfalls um, that, they, that they fell into, okay? And so that's the goal. Again, last week we looked at four churches. This week we're gonna look at three churches in Revelation chapter three. The first one of those is the church in Sardis. The church in Sardis. And so Revelation three, beginning in verse one, here is what Jesus says. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write. So again, the angel uh, is speaking of the, the pastor, the leader, the elder, the shepherd. It's, it's written to the leadership of these particular churches, okay? The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. And if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." So apparently the church in Sardis is what Jesus calls a dead church. Man, nobody wants to be a part of a dead or dying church, right? And I can assure you, nobody wants to pastor a dead church, right? But uh, 
Here's the thing, and and what makes this text so interesting and and yet a little bit terrifying is that apparently the church in Sardis was a dead church, but they were completely unaware that they were a dead church. Did you catch that? Like they, they have this reputation of being alive, but he says that they're dead. So it's possible to be a dead church and not even be aware of it, be completely oblivious to the fact that you are a dead or dying church. And so the question that I think we should ask ourselves here is how did they get there? How did they become a dead church? Because I guarantee you, it didn't happen overnight, right? They weren't like alive and doing really well and things were great one one day, one week, and then like the next day, the next week, things were, they were just dead. Like it, it was probably, as is most often the case, a slow progression into becoming a dead church. And so I think what we need to ask ourselves is, man, how do we avoid that? How do we make sure we don't get there? How do we spot you know, these, these, these things that, that make them a dead church. And so as I thought about the church in Sardis, I, I just wrote down, you know, that we are in danger of becoming a dead church when. I've got about four things really quick from the church in Sardis. Things that hopefully we can recognize and spot um, so that we don't become the church in Sardis. We don't want to be the church in Sardis, right? So here's the first thing I wrote down. We are in danger of becoming a dead church when we forget the gospel, Okay, we forget the gospel. Apparently, that's what happened in Sardis. In verse 3, Jesus says, remember then what you received and heard. Apparently, they had forgotten what they had received and heard. Paul uses the same language of received and heard when talking about the gospel. When he's talking to Timothy, when he's talking to Titus, he tells them to remember the gospel that they have received and heard. And so essentially what's happened in Sardis Uh, is that they have just forgotten the main message of the church. Can I just tell you, it is really easy for churches to forget the main message. It is really easy, sadly, to forget the gospel or to make the gospel something other than what it actually is, right? If we're not careful, we can unintentionally sort of forget this beautiful gospel story, the story of the, the fact that you and I are sinners, we can't fix ourselves or save ourselves. But the good news, the gospel, is that God loved us so much that he sent Jesus, his one and only son, into the world. And Jesus came into the world, um, and ultimately he came for the purpose of dying on a cross, sacrificing himself in our place for our sin, so that you and I can have a right relationship with God. We can be saved. We can't earn our salvation. We don't deserve it. Jesus sacrifices himself and dies on a cross in our place for our sin. And so the gospel, the good news is that it doesn't matter what you've done in your life. It doesn't matter what sins you struggle with. It doesn't matter what kind of deep, dark secrets you have. The good news of the gospel is that God loves you and died for your sin and you can be forgiven. That's, that's the good news, right? But it's sad when churches often take that message and it gets lost by sort of boiling the gospel down or making the gospel more about, you know, following a set of moralistic rules or making it political and making the gospel about voting a certain way or aligning yourself a certain way. It's sad we, we make the gospel, um, you know, about, about God wants you healthy or wealthy or, or, or things to go right in your life. It's, it's sad when we make the gospel about nothing more than a stance on a particular social justice initiative, right? You see how easy the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for us, for sinners, can become about other things, and then the message of the gospel gets lost. 
So the very first thing, I think, look, we're in danger of becoming a dead church when we cease to be a place that is first and foremost about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Apparently, they had forgotten that in Sardis. Their message became something else altogether. The second thing I wrote down is we're in danger of becoming a dead church when we allow the mission of the church to be hijacked. We allow the mission to be hijacked. I I do some consulting uh, occasionally with church planters, and so I've talked to many church planters over the years, and and I can tell you uh, almost without exception, when someone is about to start or plant a church, they are fired up. They are passionate about this thing. They've got a clear mission, a clear vision. We're going to start something new. We're going to engage lost people, disconnected people. And they're just, man, they've got this really clear mission or vision. But also what I sometimes see is a few years later, that, that passion, that mission, that vision of what they were going to be has completely changed. It's been hijacked by well-meaning church people, right? So here's what I mean by that. When we start, we're like, you know what? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. So the way we do church, the message, everything we do is, is going to be about reaching lost, disconnected people, discipling people, um, building people's faith. But often what happens is then you get people that come to your church that maybe, maybe they came from a place, they, they liked it, they liked certain things a certain way. Or, and, and so what happens is you start to um, shift the mission in order to appease people's desires and wants and what they, what, what they prefer. So we become a place that starts out, you know, using our resources to be a blessing for others and serving and blessing our community and reaching lost. And then what happens is when the mission is hijacked, we become a place that basically gets focused on ourselves, our resources, our energies, our talents. Everything is about just us here. And again, I've seen it play out time and time again. It's something we have to be on guard about, not letting the mission of the church be hijacked by, again, well-meaning people and their preferences. The third thing I wrote down is we're in danger of becoming a dead church when we become a place that avoids change, avoids change. I've been a part of some really great churches in my life, and uh, uh, many of them sadly um, were at that plateaued, declining state, and, and they didn't forget the gospel, um, they, 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 they did some really great things. They were, they were doing some great things missionally, outwardly focused. What their problem was, they, they just didn't want to change anything ever, right? Some of you have been a part of places like that, right? And it's really a sad thing because the reality is that things that are alive change, right? Like if you're, if you're here today and you're, you're breathing, which I think is all of us right now, um, guess what? You're, you're changing. To be alive is to be changing. There's, that's just... That's just part of, of new life, right? New life brings change. I, I said it this way in the first service, like if you've ever had a child, if you have children, what changes when you have children? Everything, right? Like everything changes. Your budget changes, your sleep changes, your schedule changes. Your, I mean, everything changes when you have children, right? It can be, uh, sometimes it can be a bit of an inconvenience, right? Just saying, love my kids. It can be, right? But here's the thing. We welcome the change and we welcome the inconvenience because there's new life, and we welcome new life. So many churches want new life, but they don't want the change that comes along with new life, right? So many times we want, we want new life, like we want, man, God bring us more people, and God, we wanna, we wanna be a place that is alive, but oh wait, we don't wanna change anything, <laughs> and it doesn't work that way. When we become a place that refuses to change, then we're on our way to becoming a dead church. Now, to be clear, 
there are some things that should not change, right? The message doesn't change, the gospel doesn't change, theology doesn't, like, there's things that we don't just, we don't just change with every wind of culture that's out there, but man, the way we do some things has to morph, it has to change, or pretty soon we will be, we'll be like the church in Sardis. The fourth thing that I wrote down is that we're in danger of becoming a dead church when we become consumers rather than contributors, right? When we become a place of consumers rather than a place of contributors. Consumers um, are basically, the idea is that, that we basically see the church as a place that exists to, uh, to meet my needs and the needs of my family. And so when the church doesn't meet my particular need or the need of my family, um, then we're out. That's how consumer relationships work, right? You only stay in it so long as your needs are met at a cost acceptable to you. That's what a consumer is. You absorb, that's it. But instead, what we've tried to do here is try to help you understand that by being a part of the church, it's not a place for you simply to just consume, but it's a place for you to belong. It's a place for you to serve. It's a place for you to exercise your gifts and your talents and, yes, your resources for something bigger than yourself. It's a chance for us to contribute to what God and be a part of what God is doing. And so we're, we're on our way to becoming a dead church when we sort of stop doing that and we decide, I'm just here, man, I, sermon better be good, the music better be, they better sing the songs I like, the temperature in here better be what I want it to be, the kids ministry, student ministry, college ministry, man, they all better be meeting the needs of all my kids. And, and, and you see how we can easily and quickly become a church where we're just, we're just here to sort of take it in. And our hope and our prayer, what we always try to push you to, is to not just be consumers, but to be contributors, to be contributors. So we want to learn from the church in Sardis. When the church, the church does not exist for the comfort and satisfaction of its members, it exists for the glory and the mission of Jesus. And I hope and pray that we never forget that. Apparently the church in Sardis forgot that. The next church that he writes to is the church in Philadelphia. This is not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I actually had somebody ask me that. Uh, no, not, not that church. A different Philadelphia, right? The church in Philadelphia was actually a really good, healthy church. Um, this one, along with the church in Smyrna that we looked at last week, they're, they're the only two of the seven that Jesus actually doesn't have anything negative or critical to say to them. He simply writes to encourage them, right, to build them up. And so um, here's what he writes to the church in Philadelphia. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word, patient endurance, about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. To try those who dwell on the earth, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven. My own new name, he who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the church in Philadelphia is commended for their faithfulness to God. In a lot of ways, the church in Philadelphia is the opposite of the church in Sardis. Where the church in Sardis was a dead church, the church in Philadelphia was very much alive. Where the church in Sardis had forgotten the gospel, they had forgotten that which they had received and heard, the church in Philadelphia is commended because they kept the word of God and they did not deny his name. The church in, in, in Philadelphia, man, they were, they were a church of great faith. Jesus commends them for their faith. And incidentally, what uh, historically we know is that the church in Philadelphia lasted longer than any of the seven churches that we read about. They lasted for 1,300 years. That's a long time for a church, right? These other churches, many of them died off. The church in Philadelphia lasted because they were a faithful, faithful church. One thing we always talk about here at the Vista, we say this in our membership classes, we don't care about being the cool church, although I'm really cool. I'm just kidding. We don't care about being cool. We don't care about being the biggest church. We don't care about, about that. What we try to do, we don't care about like aligning ourselves under a particular denomination and, and making sure we, we hold to the tenets of a particular uh, group. That, that's not our goal. Our goal above everything else is to be a faithful church. We just want, we want to be a faithful church. And wherever that aligns us, we're fine with that. We want to be a faithful church. The church in Philadelphia is commended for their faith. And what we see is our role and responsibility here as, as the staff and elders here is to shepherd the church well, which means to help be a place to, to launch and grow and build and develop your faith. Our goal is that every single person at the Vista have a growing faith. It's why we do the things that we do. It's why we have the ministries we have, the classes that we have, right? From, from kids and students and college on up through our adult small groups, and again, a lot of the classes that we offer, they're, they're about launching, building, developing, and growing your faith. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I don't, I don't have faith. I don't know if I have faith. Maybe you're a new believer and you're just sort of getting started and you're like, man, I don't know how to, how do I grow this thing? How do I, how do I build my faith? Maybe you have, you know, been in church, you have sort of a base understanding of some stuff, but now you've spent years away from church and you're just sort of coming back to church for the first time in a while. Listen, for, 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 maybe you're a skeptic. You're like, I'm not even sure I believe all this stuff. Like, we have a class. I'm going to do a plug here for one of our classes starting next week. We have a class called Alpha. And that class would be for you, right? The whole, the whole goal of Alpha, the class, is to help launch, build, grow, and develop a faith um, it, 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 at, a, at a very sort of base level. You can ask um, questions in, in a safe environment. You can come as a skeptic, even if you're like, I don't even know if I believe all this God, Jesus, Bible, church stuff. I'm not even sure I'm on board with all that. That's okay. We have a, we have a course for you. And the whole purpose of the course is to help launch and build and grow your faith. If that's something that you want to, you man, action step, right? You want to be a part of that? Some of you are like, man, I, I need to sign up for that. Go to, go to our next steps area after the service. Mention to someone over there, hey, I, I'm, I'm interested in Alpha. How do I find out more about Alpha? They'll be glad to talk with you about it, get you, get you signed up. The purpose is to have a growing and vibrant faith. The Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we want to be a place that is faithful above all else. And so we can learn from the church in Philadelphia. We can imitate the church in Philadelphia. And I know sometimes we think of faithful, we often think big things. Like, if I'm going to be faithful, i got to accomplish big things for God. I was reminded of a quote by Eugene Peterson this week. He said, a life of faithfulness is a life of long obedience in the same direction. 
right? It's not about going out and trying to accomplish really big things for God. It's about putting one foot in front of the other and walking in obedience to Jesus. We'll leave the big things up to God. If God wants to use us for big things, great. We want to be faithful. We want to be obedient. We want to be a place that practices long obedience in the same direction, okay? And then finally, we get to the church in Laodicea. The church in Laodicea is probably the most popular uh, of all the churches. It's the one most often talked about, most often preached about. Particularly, um, many often compare the church in America, speaking very generally in very broad terms. They'll often compare the church in America to the church in Laodicea. Um, Maybe you'll, you'll see why in just a little bit. Here's what he writes to the church in Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That does not sound good, does it? Here's the thing. There's a, a few different ways that this text has been interpreted traditionally. The most the most traditional, and, and again, these aren't, neither one is, is right or wrong. They're both very, I think, appropriate ways to interpret the text. One is sort of the, the idea that if you're cold, you are far from God, you're not interested in the things of God, you're, you're, you're lost, um, and again, the things of God, you're just, you're just far away from the Lord, right? Um, and then, of course, if, you're, if, if hot is that you're, man, you're, you're saved, you're redeemed, you are passionate, you're on fire for the Lord in every way. And so Jesus might be saying, like, look, I would rather you be cold. I would rather you not, not know Christ, be lost altogether um, than just kind of hang out in the middle and be lukewarm where you sort of claim to know Jesus, but your life doesn't look anything like a Christ follower because if you're lukewarm, you're sending some mixed signals and you may be leading people astray because you're sort of saying one thing, but you're living something else. Okay, that's kind of a, a typical traditional way this text has been interpreted. That Jesus, like literally he's saying, I'd rather you be completely lost than than just kind of hang out here and almost like pretend to be a Christian but not really live it. The other way that this text is often interpreted is uh, more a matter of usefulness, the church's or the people's usefulness to God. And so uh, cold water has a lot of uses. Um, Cold water is refreshing on a hot day. Um, cold water is, is, is um, again, to, to cool off, to drink. Um, cold water has a lot, a lot of uses. Hot water also has a lot of uses. Uh, to cleanse, to cleanse, to purify, uh, for warmth. Um, hot water is, is very useful. But lukewarm water, stagnant, plain, uh, lukewarm water um, is basically a, a breeding ground for disease. It's just not as useful. And so it may be that Jesus is saying, look, if, if, if you're cold, I can use you. If you're hot, I can use you. But as you are sort of stale, stagnant, I can't use you. You're not very useful to me, okay? Either way, the big idea is the same, that according to Jesus, he would rather us be cold or he'd rather us be hot, but not sort of stale, stagnant, again, just, just doing nothing, and the, the word he uses is actually quite harsh. He says, I would spit you out of my mouth. It's the same word for the word vomit. Like literally Jesus saying, the lukewarmness, the staleness, the stagnancy of the church literally makes me sick. And so our goal again is to not be like the church in Laodicea, 
to not be just kind of going through the motions, stale, stagnant, lukewarm, no passion, no fire, no love, no affection for Christ. That is, that is a problem. Here's what he says next. And he says uh, in verse 17, this is where they often get compared to the church in America. He says, for you say that I am rich, that I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and then salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So I mentioned that, again, the church in America is often compared to this church because the church in Laodicea was a wealthy church. They were in a wealthy city. Um, They were the, the leading commercial center in the whole region. So they were very, very wealthy. They had a lot of stuff. And apparently what's happened is uh, they are beginning to sort of place their, their, their self-worth, their validation, whatever, in their stuff, in their riches, rather than understand their complete dependence on God. Again, it happens so easily and rather unintentionally. Like, I think it's something we have to honestly guard against, right? We have nice things. God has blessed us. We're, we're doing fine financially, I remember a day when we were like 20 of us praying in a home and I was like, I sure hope this thing works. And we were praying like crazy. Every time we got together, prayer, 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 I was praying all the time, um, just pleading for God to, to, to work and move and to do something really uh, special. I remember when we launched, we had 60 people at our first service. And I remember, again, we were just praying those early years fervently, God, we are dependent on you. We cannot do this on our own. We didn't have resources. We had nothing. So I got to be honest with you. Here we are many, many years later. And I honestly don't worry. Like, I don't, I don't lose sleep at night going, I wonder if anyone will show up to church tomorrow. I used to, <laughs> right? There was a day when I was like, I don't know. If like two families are gone, we're going to notice it, right? Like, but, but today I don't honestly go, I, I don't think anybody's showing up. Like, we're, we've got people. And again, budgets. And so the danger is that we become a place that starts to rely on, on sort of just that, like we've arrived and we, we fail to understand that we are still as utterly dependent on God and God's spirit to work and move today as we were 15 years ago with 20 people, right? And that's a danger. That's a danger. I, I had a, my former pastor used to always say, you'll never know God's all you need till he's all you've got. And a lot of times the problem with the church in America is he's not all we got because we got a lot of other stuff. So something we just have to be on guard about, something we have to be cautious of. And then what he does here in the text is he essentially takes, I mentioned that Laodicea was the leading commercial center for the region. They were primarily known for three uh, major trades, uh, banking, wool and medicine, particularly a a particular eye salve uh, that they used. And so Jesus is essentially using an illustration that the people of Laodicea would have been familiar with. And he's he's using the spiritual counterparts of those things. So um, when we are saved, we are refined by God, right? The idea from banking, from gold, we're we're refined. Um, The idea from wool, we are clothed in white, When we are saved, we are redeemed, we are made spotless, blameless in the sight of God. And then the eye salve, the idea that when we meet God, um, when we meet Jesus, we can see clearly, fully, we know and understand who God is. He's simply using the economy of the city as an illustration and, and, and showing them the spiritual counterpart there. And then we'll wrap it up this way. I love the way the letter ends. This is really important. Jesus says in verse 19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Often when these, these, uh, this section of Revelation is, is preached or taught, it's, it sort of like, takes on a bit of a negative connotation, like, like God is the judge who's you know, getting on to the criminal, so to speak. Um, God's the angry, the angry guy upstairs, you know, lashing out at the church. But I'm reminded when I read the end of the letter to the church in Laodicea that that's really not the purpose of these letters at all. That the, the idea is that it not be negative, but instead that it's, that it's quite positive. God, listen, God loves the church. Jesus loves the church. Jesus died for the church. Jesus is interested in the well-being and the flourishing of the church. If Jesus didn't care, he doesn't even write these letters. He's like, do whatever you want. I don't even care. Jesus cares deeply about the church. And so he's reminding the church that in spite of all the flaws and the failures and the weaknesses, he's reminding the church that, listen, I discipline, I correct those that I love. I've said it this way before, like if you sense the conviction of God in your life, that is not something to run from, that's something to run to, right? If you sense the conviction, the discipline, the correction of God, congratulations, that probably means you're a child of God because he loves you. I'd be far more worried if I never sensed the conviction or, or the correction or the discipline or the rebuke of God. I'd be far more worried because Jesus disciplines those that he loves. That's what the text just said, because he's a good father. He's a good father. And he's reminding the church that, look, I'm still here. I stand at the door and I knock and I'm still here and I love you and all you've got to do is repent and return to me. Man, that's, that's good news. That's a positive thing, right? That's a positive thing. I wrote this down this week as I was reading over the text. The words of God to us, the church, they are not the words of a judge to a criminal, but rather the words of a father to a child. We would live with so much more freedom and joy in our lives if we stopped seeing ourselves as criminals in the eyes of an angry judge and started to see ourselves instead as beloved children in the eyes of a loving father. And how much more joy and freedom we would have in our life if we didn't see God as the angry judge upstairs waiting to get us and instead saw him as a loving father that we can run to and we can pursue. My hope and my prayer as we've looked at these seven churches is that we would imitate what they did well and what they did right and we would learn from the pitfalls and the areas where they were off just a little bit. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for these churches. We get a glimpse, Father, into your heart for the church. So God, I pray that we would be a place that imitates the things um, that they got right that we would be a faithful church above all else. And we confess, Father, that sometimes we get it wrong. And so we just need, God, we just need you to continually guide and lead and direct, show us your way. God, this is your church. It is not, it is not our church. It's not my church. It's not our elders' church. God, this is your church. So help us to get behind you and to follow. Help us, God, to practice long obedience in the same direction. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.